I'm Jason. And I'm Maddie. And this is Making Sense of Chaos. I'm Noah Rochetta. I live in Utah, um, one of the western states in the United States. Uh, I have a, a wife and three kids. Um, I've lived here for the past uh, 11 years now. And prior to that, I've lived in, I was born in Texas. I grew up in Mexico. Um, one of my hobbies is para, para, powered paragliding. Uh, I enjoy the outdoors and traveling. And I took a keen interest in Buddhism about roughly 11, 11 or 12 years ago. Um and found it to be just a fascinating uh, philosophical approach to life. And I kind of went down that rabbit hole and uh, studied Buddhism formally and then um, ended up eventually having a podcast and talking about Buddhism and explaining Buddhist thoughts and uh, teachings and ideas for Western-minded people. Uh, so that's that's kind of, in a nutshell, my my background yeah beautiful and uh, I guess from what I've learned about Buddhism um, from your podcast is that a lot is about changing the way western people look at suffering and I guess we were curious from your end before you got into Buddhism how you used to see suffering in your life uh, maybe you could take us through any experiences um, that you had and and how you look at those now with a a Buddhist lens? Yeah, I think I had very much the, I guess what we could call kind of the Western approach to uh, suffering. It seems like in our societal norms and conditioning, we kind of look for this formula that says, if you do this, or if you don't do that, or if you have this, or if you don't have that, if you get that that equation right, you won't experience suffering. And that's very much how I viewed it, um, especially in the religion of my upbringing. I had very much the mindset that if you're living the right life, doing the right things and avoiding doing the wrong things, then you're not going to experience suffering in life, or at least not any major suffering. Mm. And my my own lived experience ended up uh, proving that wrong because um as a as a young adult suddenly i was experiencing this phase in life this difficulty that had arisen and i was very confused why i was experiencing this 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 thing in my life because i had been living my life the right way doing the right things avoiding the wrong things and um so i think that was my general approach to suffering is it's something that you can somehow avoid or overcome if you do it the right way and my experience was telling me, well, but that's not how it works. Um, so that's when I started studying uh, Buddhism, specifically meditation, which led to Buddhism, and encountered a whole different way of thinking about suffering, which is first and foremost, not lumping all of suffering into one big group. It was um, understanding that there, there is what we can call natural suffering, you know, the suffering that you experience when you hit your uh, finger with a hammer, 
when you were trying to nail something, uh, the suffering of loss. If when you lose a loved one, that's going to be a difficult thing. Uh, but there's a type of suffering that's um, uh, unnatural, self-inflicted. Um, and this is the suffering that usually arises linked to some kind of a, an unskillful belief or an unskillful view. Um, and once I, I started to understand that, that, that suffering can be natural, but you can also be experiencing suffering that's not natural. Um, that made me start looking into my own suffering that I was experiencing and learning to understand that part of that suffering was fine. And I I didn't need to try to push that away. And the other part was, um, self-inflicted and it was, it was attached to some form of unskillful view or belief that I had about myself or about others or about reality. Um, so for me, this, this notion of suffering that I was introduced to through Buddhist thought, um, was the understanding that suffering isn't something that's a problem that you can, you know, follow an equation and you'll get rid of it. It's something that you can become comfortable with. And that was a novel approach, a novel idea, the, the, the idea or the thought that you can become more comfortable with discomfort. Mm. And that's, that's one way to ease discomfort is to become comfortable with it. Where the other approach is thinking I'll be comfortable when there is no discomfort. Mm. And then you experience more discomfort because discomfort is a natural part of life. So you're going through it, experiencing discomfort anyway, but then being uncomfortable with the discomfort makes the, the discomfort worse. So that was kind of the, the, the difference, the two, uh, the approach I had before encountering Buddhist thought, and then the approach after where I thought, um, you know, I can become more comfortable with the discomfort and that, uh, was a more healthy approach for me. So. It's, it strikes me now when listening to your podcast, I've sort of, we've both been sort of avid listeners for, for a long time now mm. and one of the things that um, Buddhism appears to assist with is that sort of introspection, that ability to really understand who we are, what we are, and how we interact with the world. And often, from a personal point of view, I found a lot of what you, you've got a really um, simple way of exploring mm-hmm. complex um, terms. And that's one of your sort of purposes is to, is to sort of negotiate that with the, with the listeners. But one of the things that sort of I was reflecting on and have been for the last few weeks is, you know, time with loved ones and being able to sort of reflect and almost future think, you know, create these concepts or these understandings of what this what this may look like in the future or what this sort of certain condition may look like in the future. You know, like with partner, how will it be when, you know, we're, we're 80, when we're 90 or if, if, if there's a certain illness you know, the, the fact that things change, that things morph and to look at things in that way rather than um, be possessed by that, that in the moment perception or that in the moment um, episode that you're, that, you're, that you're noticing. And I found once I started shifting into that ever-changing um, sense that, you know, things change, things begin, things end, um, it was very sort of life-altering for me. Um, and, you know, my, my, my partner... Um, she gets infused into a lot of these conversations because of it and she thinks very different differently to me um but 
there was something really sort of quite powerful and unique about sharing and um and and living in a, in a space where you know, you're not holding on to these sort of ideologies or, or concepts of the way things are based on you know quite a myopic narrow view and you know that you can expand and, and live a life that's you know full range you've got the, the full the full range of experiences and the full range of emotions and you know that's a, a very powerful um experience to to have so I, I want to say thank you for sort of being able to sort of navigate that through all your episodes because um very much the this, this shoot up this shall to pass is something that you you talk about a lot and um i've got a tattoo on my body um that i got about 10 years ago that sort of represents that same sort of um, um thinking so yeah i just want to say thank you you're welcome thank you for sharing that mm. yeah and i think for me it's um no uh, that that episode you did where you spoke about um curiosity into a range of different emotions no matter how uncomfortable they are um that really spoke to me and um a recent experience uh been doing a lot of ocean swimming getting trying to get into it and um Jason's been joining me too actually and we've been speaking about the jellyfish which are really prominent in Australia at the moment and um, the fear of them and it's like this all-encompassing fear that all of the swimmers talk about oh my god how many jellyfish did you see and oh how bad are your your jellyfish stings and um, and then that that approach of just like okay yes I, I will get stung by a jellyfish you know it's going to be a new experience it's going to be a new range of emotions but I'm open to it like I, I can handle this this is actually this is interesting I've never experienced this kind of um emotional um section before so um yeah that, that that's sort of a a small example but I guess it's you know it, it does also go deeper like um you know, feelings of of rejection you know liking someone and realizing okay well maybe they don't hold the same feelings towards you I think just um knowing that it's okay and it's it you, you're going to experience it and it's going to end and then you'll experience something different um has has been something really beautiful to um to remember that's great I love that um it's interesting how that little analogy that and that microcosm of what you're describing with swimming and the jellyfish, that's kind of what we go through in life in general, right? Um, you would, if you were to say, I want to go, I'm going to start swimming in the ocean. And one of the things that you encounter when you swim in the ocean is jellyfish. Um, it would almost sound silly if you were to say the only right way to do this is to make sure there are never any jellyfish and every time you go swimming you're really upset because oh i ran into another jellyfish out there yeah somebody from the outside might say you know if you're going to be in the ocean you're going to see jellyfish that's the nature of the ocean and we do that in life with with things it's almost like somewhere we picked up the societal view that if you if if life is hard you're doing it wrong mm. uh or parenting or being in a relationship like if 
if it's difficult, then something's wrong. When the it's it's like the jellyfish. It's like, no, the nature of the ocean is that there are jellyfish in the ocean, and the nature of life is that difficulties arise in life. The nature of relationships is that re- there there are ups and downs. You know, um, I feel like that has been um, a pretty strong shift in my mindset um, po- or prior to encountering Buddhist thought, and then after encountering it, is this. Uh, allowing things to be what they are. Je- there will be jellyfish if I'm yeah. going to spend time in the ocean. Mm-hmm. If I'm going to spend time being alive, I'm going to encounter the difficulties that arise just from being alive, whether it's dealing with a flat tire on the road when I didn't want it or issues with kids, you know, that, that happens a lot in parenting. Um, but just in general, that mindset of uh, getting used to the jellyfish if you're going to swim in the ocean. I like that. Yeah, I love it. And I, I sort of, I sort of want to escalate the conversation a little bit, as usual. Um, I, I'm wondering, from jellyfish to the uncomfortability around around death and our mortality, um, it's something that Maddie and I speak about mm-hmm. um, often, probably daily, in some form. And I'm, I'm wondering the sort of Buddhist perspective on death um, around imagining the death and imagining. There's certain, there's certain elements of, of Buddhism where um, you you view and meditate on your on your rotting corpse, um, and how, what freedom um, I, I do that daily before I go to bed, and it provides me with a lot of I experience a lot of fear um, while I'm doing it, but there's a lot of freedom that comes with that. The paradox of fear and freedom. So I'm just wondering your experience in, in navigating that, um, given that you've got you've got three kids. And you yes, know, that um, you know your kids will live and die, and you will live and die, and your wife, and how you how you sort of navigate that personally. Yeah. Um, so when I one of the first books I read when I started studying Buddhism was timed with one of uh, my business partner when I started one of my first businesses out of college. He had been diagnosed with cancer. And his cancer was advancing to the point where we now knew that he wasn't likely going to survive. It was just a matter of time. And he uh, gave me a book called the Tibetan book of living and dying. And that was my first encounter with the Buddhist approach to death. And I, as I was reading this, I was simultaneously going through the gradual loss of my, of my uh, friend and Um, It was a beautiful thing to go through because death is such a taboo topic in our Western way of thinking. We don't want to think about it until we're forced to think about it because it's happened or it's happening. And um, with my friend Jordan and and reading this book, it changed my perspective on, on death and it's the relationship to life. And specifically there was a quote in that book that I'll never forget that said, um, if you, if you don't think about death often, you're not really living. I remember thinking, man, I never think about death. Maybe I'm not really living. And over the years, it's, I've come to understand kind of what you were hinting at that when we do think about it often, uh, then it becomes more precious being alive becomes a precious thing because we recognize that it's, uh, life is fragile and the, uh, certain the, the certainty of death and the uncertainty of the timing. And 
Um, I think about it often. It's become part of my, my regular practice, uh, thinking about my own death, thinking about the death of my loved ones, my, my children, my spouse. Uh, I recently lost my, my dad to cancer. Um, and I had plenty of time to think about what that would be like and what that did. It, it, it doesn't make it so that death is suddenly not a difficult thing. It made it so that all the time that I did have with him in the last five, 10 years, when this has become a, a focal point of my practice, I feel it was more precious than it would have been had I not thought about death often. Mm. Um, so that I think is a powerful practice to, to think about death. I often think about, you know, what if a year from now I had a terminal form of cancer, what things would matter at that point? Mm. And if, if I knew that that was what's in store for me, then what really matters now? And Again, it helps you prioritize things. Uh, it helps you understand some of the things that you think matter, maybe don't. And some of the things that you don't think matter, maybe do. Um, but you wouldn't think about that if you didn't think about death. So I do, I do see it as a powerful practice for living a, a more uh, vibrant life is to think about death often. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, th- I think um, what, what you're saying reminds me of something, I think Evan Yalom said it about death anxiety and um, the, the greater death anxiety that you have, you've probably got a greater fear of actually living fully. Um, and what, what, what you were saying, Noah, about it, the priority shift when, when you can clearly see death and um, the, the death of, of everyone around you. Um, it, it, it brought me to, to thinking about, um, you know, what, what actually ties us together, all of us as human beings. Like, you know, we've never met you before. Um, we're in Australia ages away, but uh, I'm assuming the three of us have some kind of similar priorities um, in life. Um, you know, to, to love and, and receive love and obviously, like, you know, food and water and shelter and all of those things. But um, from, from the work you've been doing, Noah, and all the people you've been speaking to, have you come to any ideas about what all of our commonalities are at, at the end of the day? Um, yeah, I think I think to some degree, just through... Uh, books about psychology and stuff. I feel like one of the shared human experiences is um, the fact that we want to be, we want to fit in, you know, and I think that this is a, um, um, it's not something that we choose. It's, it's hardwired in us as social creatures, our survival depended on it uh, to, to belong to an in-group. And I think that, um, we, we kind of all have this desire to be liked and to avoid being disliked. Um, and, and then from that, from, from that, that as the root from then on all kinds of things evolve out of that, right? We sometimes the very careers that we choose or the partners that we end up with are all playing part in this underlying desire to make sure I'm doing what's going to ensure that you like me 
and it's going to ensure that you don't dislike me. Um, you know, I mean, think of somebody who marries a certain person because that's who their parents approve of. That's what's happening there. Or somebody who picks a career because that's what's expected of them. Again, the, that's what's the root there is I want to make sure that you like me. So this is why I'm doing this. Mm. Um, so that I think is one of them. And then the other one is uh, revolves around suffering. I think as humans and probably as all, all sentient beings want to avoid suffering. Um, and again, this is something that we can't help, right? It's um, if I touch something that's hot and it's burning me, I, I can't will myself to be okay with that. It hurts and my hand is going to pull back. Um, so with physical suffering and also uh, emotional or mental suffering, I think it's the same. We're going to avoid it because it's unpleasant. And that seems to be a commonality. You know, we all, we all want to avoid that uh, suffering as much as we can. Um, I'm sure there are others, but I think those are the two main ones that almost seem like I can't think of anyone who doesn't, uh, who, who, who doesn't want to avoid suffering and anyone who doesn't want to, who's okay with not being liked or, you know, wanting to be liked and avoiding dislike seems to be another one of those universal things. But I do think the relationship we have with these, um, let's call them, I don't know, human traits or tendencies, the relationship with it can change. I know for me in my own personal experience, the desire to be liked or to avoid being disliked is something that I've come to understand uh, is an innate thing that I maybe can't help. But when I see that it's unfolding, I'm like, Oh, this is why I'm doing this. Okay. I know what I'm, I I know what game I'm playing and that changes what's happening in the moment because then suddenly I can say, okay, okay. I'm I'm okay with this now, now that I realize why I'm doing this, Mm -hmm. uh, let me take a step back and, and maybe do this other thing. I've caught myself doing that on multiple occasions with, with things. Um, yeah, I don't know. Can you can you think of any others that are universally common like that? I, th- I think well, the, the irony. I'm sort of the avoidance of the avoidance of suffering, obviously, but the avoidance of um, the avoidance of fear or the avoidance of, of, of terror. I think um, Maddie and I both mm-hmm. sort of work on uh, helplines where we um, sort of mental health, drug and alcohol helplines, and there's a lot of acute um, fear, um, a lot of uh, acute suffering. And I suppose, um, you know, witnessing that every day, it's, 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 it's very, it's very interesting to see that, that the theme of how do I deviate what I'm experiencing? How do I move away mm. from this current emotional experience that I'm having? Mm. And it seems to be quite, hardwired it seems to be quite um quite difficult to 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 shift um and sometimes you get you get get lost in the narrative you get lost in the narrative of this 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 individual wanting something to be other than what it is Mm. and you know a lot of the time I, i work with someone under the sort of buddhist sort of philosophy and sometimes i find when someone's in that acute terror or fear um I'm probably more interested in your, in your view and how Buddhism fits within that setting, within that sort of a quite acute fear, that almost forced dis- disassociation that, 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 you know, something happens to someone and 
they have to almost protect their being. Um, where, can Buddhism function in that in that space? Uh, yeah, I I think it it can. You know, from the psychological perspective, this is this is sometimes talked about like the writer and the elephant uh, and the part of our, our brain that is uh, driven by emotion is the equivalent of the elephant or a horse. Uh, think of someone riding a horse, same analogy. And then there's the intellectual side of the brain that can process and make meaning of things. That's the rider. So there's a dynamic that's taking place between the horse and the rider. And sometimes no matter how skilled the rider is, if the elephant is spooked by a mouse or the horse is spooked by a snake in the grass, the the horse is going to do what the horse will do. And the rider's just going along for the ride for a moment. Um, so that analogy, that visual works really well with how our emotions can be hijacked. Maybe somebody cuts you off while you're driving or somebody insults you. And then the elephant goes running and you're already saying things or reacting in a way where it's not the writer that's in control anymore. So um, Buddhism, the approach in Buddhism is similar in, but because there's this understanding that the relationship between, between the horse and the rider is so important. um, The Buddhist approach is, is kind of like, recognizing in these instances when the horse is spooked or the elephant is on a rampage um, doing anything might make it worse. You know, if I were to take this whip and start hitting the horse to say, calm down, calm down, it's not going to calm down. It's making it worse. So there's this ability to kind of go for the ride for a little bit, uh, sit with the emotion is what it would be called in Buddhism um, where you can, the moment you can pause from experiencing an emotion and transition to observing the experience of the emotion. There's a gap, you know, there's a sudden little gap and it allows you to still honor whatever it is you're experiencing. Let's use anger as an example, as an example, suddenly I'm angry, but then I can observe that I'm angry. But in that moment of observation, the observer isn't angry. The observer is neutral, just observing, oh, wow, I'm really angry. And that pause, that little gap allows me to finish that process of going for the ride and say, okay, wow, okay, I'm really angry right now. But that stops the ride too. I can say, now whatever's going to happen next, the rider's back in control. The rider is the observer. Um and I've, I've experienced this in, in my own practice, you know, encountering instances of, of strong emotional reactivity to whatever, whatever it is that that's causing it. And now being able to recognize almost immediately as it's happening, wow, this is a really strong emotion. Why am I reacting this strongly to this thing that's unfolding? And boom, in that moment of observation, the observer starts to kick in and start analyzing, oh, maybe it's because this or because of that. Um, so I think that's a neat um, a, a neat part of Buddhism to give us this set of tools to say, there's nothing wrong with feeling whatever you're going to feel. If, if you're suddenly angry, fine, you're angry. That's fine. Now observe it because what happens when you observe it is that gap. So mm-hmm. And I think there are other approaches, at least in in Western society, where the game you're playing is, you shouldn't be mad. You should never be mad. 
And now I'm mad that I'm mad because mad being mad is a thing that happens. And, and then I have a feeling about the feeling that I have. And, and Buddhism is more like, no, let's, let's go back to the, the initial layer. If the initial emotion, if anger is what you're feeling, fine, feel it. There's no, no, nothing wrong with feeling angry, but I don't need to be angry about being angry. You know, I can sit with the emotion and, uh, and actually be friendly with it and say, oh, it's anger. Okay. I haven't, you haven't been here for a while. What's causing you uh, to be here now? What's going on? And in, in that observation and in that moment of awareness, uh, insight may arise. Mm-hmm. So changing your, your interaction, your actual, you know, befriending whatever it is, befriending it rather than trying to negate it or, or repress it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's really interesting because I think um, distraction in society, mm. boredom in general, um, seems to always sort of come alight, especially in, in our work. People um, are almost sort of walking through life, um, responding to free space or, or, or nothingness or, or um, this sort of this. this they're like ch- chasing and I, it's not just other people. I do it myself all the time um, before I remind myself of what I'm doing. We're sort of chasing um, a happy moment, you know, ch- chasing something good. And then you're like, okay, well, something good happened. Say, you know, you're, you're chasing that holiday. You're like, can't wait till we go, can't wait till we go. And then you get there and you're like, oh, why was I so excited about this? It's you, you eventually end up in that sameness um, and then you get home and, and then there's that sameness. And so it's almost like that, that chase is an illusion because that, that burst of, of happiness, you know, is, is going to end and may, maybe it's not exactly what you're looking for because it's, that's the absence of the jellyfish you know it's like that that's something that's um not as real as as all of the other stuff in a way so yeah yeah exactly Mm. but what what, i mean the distraction in general like Mm. we you know sit i think you talk about when one of the episodes are about i think it was sitting down um your kids and getting them to be bored Mm. getting to sort of navigate boredom and I thought that was you know an amazing thing to do because all around you you know including including ourselves we mm. we we always want to fill that space and we we or um, feel feel something feel something yeah 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 um mm. and I think one of the things you said how can we be bored how mm. can we, if we're if we're if we're interconnected with what actually what is around us how can we actually be bored um yeah, and and that's something that I always sort of go, sort of go to. I sort of um, look well, what what is boredom? No, what is boredom? What? No, what do no. you think? <laughs> uh, I don't know. I almost think maybe it's just a lack of awareness. You know, because okay. like like we were saying earlier, if I if I'm sitting here bored, it's the it must be that I'm just not aware of of anything i could look at this computer uh, that i'm talking through and the camera and everything and just think what did it take for this thing to arise and if i were to go down that mental process suddenly this moment of boredom is filled with like uh, almost awe like wow that's what it took you know for this computer to be 
built wherever it was built by the hands that did it. And so, so many causes and conditions that allow this thing to be what it is. And I could be looking at a computer that's quite complex, but it could also happen staring at, in a blank room, staring at the cement wall. What did it take for the cement to form and become what it is? Oh, wow. And then that mental exploration knocks you out of the boredom because you're paying attention. And when you're paying attention, there's a lot happening. Uh, that's, that's why it almost seems like through awareness, how could you ever be bored? Um, everything that it's taking for this moment to be what it is, it's quite fascinating if if you can think about it mm. maybe that's what boredom is i don't know mm. Mm. i mean is, is boredom uncomfortable is, is it an uncomfortable experience to, to feel or to not be certain of what what you're experiencing is that is not having a, a a defined concept of actually what you're experiencing it could be it could be boredom could be anything there's 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 freedom with boredom mm. yet you know i think we know from an existential point of view, you know, we tend to not want freedom. We tend to sort of avoid um, options and, and different pathways and create a certain um, reality that's, that's, that's fits within a, a comfort zone. Box ourselves yeah. in somehow. Box ourselves in, yeah. 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 It, is, it is such an interesting, I mean, it's a concept. At the end of the day, that's all it is. Um, and it's interesting how fast it can change because I've played this game with my kids where they're bored. So I'll say, okay, well then let's make a game out of it. Let's see who can be the most bored right now. And then they're all competing to try to be bored, but they're not bored in the game. They're trying to be bored, which ironically makes you not bored. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's fascinating to realize then what is it? What is boredom? Mm-hmm. If it can suddenly be fun to do it, then it's not boredom, you know? <laughs> mm-hmm. Because yeah, right. you think about, especially in Western society, like how much overworking is uh, prioritized and almost like it's like a bragging right to say how little sleep you got and, uh, you know, how many jobs you're working and, and how much exercise you're doing each day. Um, I know I fall into that trap with the exercise, but it's, um, yeah, it's like, but it, what are we, what are we avoiding at the end of it? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I think discomfort has to be a big part of it. Anytime yeah. we're experiencing discomfort, if we're not used to discomfort, then that we've got to do something, distract ourselves, mm-hmm. anything that's not this. And maybe that's at the root of, of boredom. It's a sudden realization that you're uncomfortable and we're not okay with being uncomfortable. So now we got to do something about that. And I guess we haven't allowed ourselves a chance to make that discomfort in, into something that actually might be quite comfortable. Like we haven't let mm-hmm. it be there for long enough. Yeah. Yeah, we've got to define, we've got a defined response to it, right? We've, mm. we've formed an understanding, some sort of concept or some sort of image mm. about it. And that boredom could be, boredom just the start of it, could be anything, mm. you know? we form a concept an image and then we we, that's our reality yeah or it could be just like you're confronting your true self when you're bored you know that like without any frills you're just confronting you and what's around you maybe for some people that's that's a bit too much to to look at (laughs) (laughs) yeah (laughs) yeah
that was part one of our episode with Noah Rochetta. Part two will be released this Friday. In the meantime, you can check out our Instagram, Making Sense of Chaos, or one word, for a teaser of part two. Thanks, and we'll see you next time.